under arrest. Arrest? Uh, parole violation in West Virginia. Extradition hearings tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah. You have a lawyer? No, I don't need one. Why not? Guilty. Guilt guilty of what? That's an interesting question. I don't know if you're aware of this, Lee, but in certain countries like Germany or Mexico, escaping from jail isn't punishable. To those countries, it is natural for man to want to escape a cage. They rule it is inhumane to be locked up in one. And the United States doesn't have that, but I think we should make an exception for West Virginia since it is only natural for man to want to escape from there and it is inhumane to be locked up in that place. <laughs> That's a uh, wheeling West Virginia dig. Yeah, I'm joking. I'm joking. Of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with West Virginia. It just it was an easy dig. It was a very easy joke for me to make right there. But actually, though that might be true, there is, of course, terms and conditions with that little stipulation. So, yes, in Germany or Mexico or any of those other countries, they won't punish you for escaping from jail, but they will punish you for other crimes related from escaping from jail. So let's say you broke the prison bars in order to escape. They charge you with property damage. Let's say you don't you know, harm anything. Let's say you get out scot-free, but you're wearing the prison uniform. They'll charge you with theft. It is virtually impossible to escape from prison, but not break one of the other laws. So they'll still get you that way. Yeah, like I guess those other offenses aren't as aren't as heavy, aren't as pu punishable. But uh, yeah, still the the fact remains you you're not going to be breaking any law for fleeing prison, but it's just going to be virtually impossible for you to do that without you know breaking some kind of law, stealing right, some clothes, exactly. breaking some bars. Yeah. So that opening soundbite was Chris Stevens talking with his brother Bernard, and he mentions that he's under arrest. But is this what arrest looks like? Can you be under arrest and just collecting your things at home? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it happens more often than you think. I've never been arrested before. I'm not saying that <laughs> speak from personal experience or anything. But it's not It's not as uh, dramatic as the movies make it out to be. Like, you could be served, like, a warrant for arrest and be like, all right, you got to show up, like, on this date. Like, it's relatively soon. But not all of the times they haul you off in cuffs and put you into the baggy wagon. Interesting. So you could be under arrest, but not in not jailed. Yeah, but it's not like days at a time or anything like that from uh, from what I've seen. Oh, like, well, so you mean like in Chris's instance, he's like, you know, arrested, but still roaming free for like days at a time? No, no, no. He's not roaming free for days at a time. Like he's got like a few hours oh. before they haul him off into the slammer. Well, he's never he's never pictured behind bars in this episode. He's well, OK, well, hold on. What are we talking about, Charles? Okay, okay, okay. So what we're talking about is Northern Exposure. It's a 1990 CBS television sitcom series. My name is Charles. This is my co-host, Lee. And together, we overanalyze Northern Exposure. We like to get into the nitty-gritty of it, try to find some further meaning beyond the words right there. That's right. In every episode, we try to introduce the show to someone new, you know, sort of a fresh perspective, and sort of get that out-of-context take on the episode. Now, Charles, every episode that we watch is the first time for you. Like, this is your first time watching this show. Of course, you've been watching up to this point. So you've seen like four, you know, three plus seasons of this show. Um, but this is a new one for you. This episode is called Crime and Punishment. And it's the 10th episode of the fourth season of Northern Exposure. The original air date was December 14th, 1992. It was directed by Rob Thompson, who directed a lot of um, 
pivotal episodes of Northern Exposure, I guess you could say. Uh, Spring Break, for instance, Burning Down the House, Sicily, that's just to name a few. And um, it was written by Jeff Melvoin, who wrote Dateline Sicily and Democracy in America. And of course, he'll go on to write more episodes of this show. But Crime and Punishment, what do you what do you think, Charles? Yeah, so this is the second time that they mentioned Crime and Punishment. I believe they mentioned it in the episode Sicily, right mm. there. Same, uh, obviously same writer, it's yeah. Named after. Yeah, you uh, might know the same director, not the same writer. Oh, that's right. Sorry, <laughs> Rob Thompson was uh, no, that's the director. Okay. <laughs> obviously named after the Fyodor Dostoevsky novel, right there. I've never actually read it, but. Before this recording, I read the Sparknotes version very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Have you read Crimson? I haven't. No, I have not read it myself, but uh, give us that Sparknotes. Okay, I'm going to go through the extreme abridged version right here. <laughs> Please do not email me if I uh, miss out <laughs> any details on here. Basically, there's a man in Russia. He kills someone. He doesn't confess to the crime. Kind of feels guilty about it. Some people suspect that he is the murderer, but they can't have foolproof evidence that he committed it. He decides to confess because of his friends kind of trying to tell him to like plead to do the right thing. And he kind of feels it within himself. So he goes to the police station, confesses to his crime. And instead of getting the full, uh, what is that thing called? Like sentence? Uh, whenever you get hit with like the, yeah, like the get hit with the full book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get slammed with like the full book right there. He uh, gets a reduced sentence of like eight years of hard labor in Siberia because <laughs> his other friends vouch for him and say like he's a good man and it, it doesn't reflect who he is so you shouldn't throw him there for life and that's basically crime and punishment. Yeah, I mean just the words crime and punishment and that synopsis that you gave, I can see a lot of similarities with what we watched here in this episode. You know, Chris struggling with his past that's caught up to him and um, he's got a, a pretty um, calm. Uh, approach to all this throughout pretty much the whole episode. Uh, he's just seen it as karma coming back. And it's like, now's the time when he's got to pay. Uh, so he kind of willingly submits to this, um, to the law, maybe I should say. But um, well, this episode, it, it kind of follows like a one track uh, plot line. There's definitely some things going on with like Ruth Ann as sort of a subplot and uh, the visiting judge who comes to uh hear um, Chris's case this episode, but pretty much the entire episode is narrowly focused on Chris's trial, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I think that's for the better. I don't think that he should have had any other plots to uh, distract our attention from this. I think it's a really interesting one, and obviously there's a lot of subtext, a lot of themes that you can play with this. So they went all in on this plot line, and I really appreciate it. But yeah, like you said, there are small little paths in this episode, like... For instance, one of the neat little tidbits that I caught was that Maggie is in a book club and they were reading Edith Wharton's House of Mirth. House of Mirth is a novel that's about like a 29-year-old woman that wants to marry but finds that her marriage situations are getting fewer and fewer as the passage <laughs> of time goes on. So perfectly fitting for Maggie O'Connell, uh, who just recently turned 30 at the beginning of this season. And she's, uh, you know, that episode was a lot about her reconciling with her past relationships. Uh, but I can totally see her <laughs> trying to find uh, a partner. You know, this that book sounds perfect for uh, Maggie O'Connor. <laughs> uh, one thing that confused me uh, about this Chris Stevens plotline that is not related to it at all is that <laughs> I didn't realize that Chris was only in Sicily for six years. Oh, I didn't even catch that. So is that what they were saying? Like he jumped parole six years prior? 
Yeah, so I assumed that Chris was in Sicily for at least a decade. Let's think about this. My Just my conception of Chris, at what age did, you know, in my mind, at what age did he flee West Virginia? I always thought of it as like when he was like in his late teenage years. But in fact, uh, maybe that portion of his life was when he was like, committing the crimes. And I wonder, how did they mention how, how many years he had served or how much time? I thought it was like two to three years or something, or am I completely misrepresenting that? Yeah, it was about two to three years. So he would be in his early early 20s, maybe when he got out of prison. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And to add on to that, in the early flashbacks, whenever they see him in prison, yeah. he looks about the same as he is now, which would <laughs> yeah. indicate that it's not much time has passed. I do love that there's a, there is a montage where we sort of see uh, Chris's past, uh, Mike Monroe, who I get, well, let's not jump too far ahead. Let's just say there's a, uh, there's this montage where we see Chris, Chris's past through like, I want to say it's like eight millimeter film. It's like very, uh, low quality film kind of evokes the sense of home movies. And we see like a young Chris, then we see, um, you know, this Chris who's leaving prison, who looks pretty similar to, the Chris that we see today in the episode, uh, but you know, maybe has longer hair. There's like some some uh, instances where Chris has a mustache, like when he's in prison. And uh, I think whenever they provide photo evidence in the courtroom, uh, you don't actually see the photo, but you can see through. It's like a clear fax paper. You kind of see the photo that's printed on the other side. It does look like. Chris Stevens, but maybe with longer hair and a mustache, you can kind of see it. <laughs> yeah. All right. To start things off, we see Chris giving off another address at K-Bear. He's trying to tell townsfolk about this moose that got shot. I'm going to bring that up later in the episode. Oh. Lots of images of violence and of guns, but we'll leave that be for right now. <laughs> we see that Chris is actually being hauled off to the slammer by Officer Szymanski, coming back to guest star once again. Yeah, actually really happy to have her back, but uh, I think I have some of my similar complaints as the last time that we saw her. She has a very storied and uh, very complex history with Maurice, but the last episode that we saw her in, they don't really revisit that. I want to say that was the episode Our Wedding, but maybe it was uh, it was something to do with relationships, and I figured, wait, am I totally misremembering that? Let me see. Okay, yeah, it was Our Wedding in, in season three, and uh, I remember... Watching that episode, you know, it had been some time since we had seen Barbara Szymanski, and I just didn't think they gave her a, a fair shake in that episode. She didn't have a whole lot to do, and it's the same in this episode. Like, she definitely serves a, a, a great purpose for the plot, but um, there's even a scene where Maurice is talking with Holling at the Brick, and they're across the room from Szymanski, who's just eating food, and... Um, you know, it seems like something's about to open up, like maybe Maurice and Szymanski will get another scene together. But um, it doesn't really, you know, Szymanski doesn't have any sort of uh, character turns or anything. She's just sort of there to serve the function of uh, of apprehending this criminal, maybe. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, it didn't have to be Officer Szymanski at all. Like, they could have introduced a minor character that had the same lines as Officer Szymanski, right. honestly. It could have been the same exact person. And all you had the twist on Maurice's word is, look at this person. Uh, you know what? Yeah. You know what? They could have kept the exact same words. Yeah. Honestly. Well, like, what we, it, we would have filled in the holes. Yeah. What he does say about that's in that scene about Szymanski is he's like, look at her. She's sitting there eating food uh, here, having a meal. Uh, not even reacting to the chaos that she's like brought upon this town by trying to remove 
Chris Stevens, who we see throughout this episode has had such a profound effect on Cicely. Maurice can't believe that she is um, unaffected by, you know, her actions. Like her actions are taking that away from the town. She feels no guilt or remorse. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, maybe it's a good thing that she's here. Maybe this is sort of uh, some breadcrumbs. Like she's going to appear again soon in this season. I, I sure hope that she comes back. Maybe this is a lead up to more Szymanski episodes. Well, I guess you could make an argument that she is the face of law and order and it always has to uphold despite whoever it is that committed the crime. So if we brought in a minor character that we had never seen before, we wouldn't feel the full effects of the quote unquote law and order. Yeah. Because we would associate her to be like, oh, she's one of the good guys. Wait, why is she arresting Chris Stevens? Oh, it's because you, you know, you have to follow the law. So maybe it has that impact. Yeah, and just the economy of that character. It's like a quick um, it's a quick image that we know. When we see Samansky, if we've been following the show, we understand like what to expect and what that means, that sort of respect for the law. So yeah, we can applaud that. You know, it it has mostly a uh, like more of a plotty function, but uh, we get it really quickly just because we're familiar with this uh, this character and her image. Right. So yeah, yeah. I took back my words previously. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I uh you know, I, I well, let's let's uh, cross our fingers for some more Szymanski, Maurice development in later episodes. Um, I like that uh, Joel and Holling sort of uh, set up a little bit of exposition early on, um, specifically about you know why now? Why if Chris uh, jumped parole? What was it six years ago? Why is the state of West Virginia coming for him now? Why did they wait so long? Holling's excuse is. Uh, a judge only comes to Sicily like once in a blue moon. They don't really, there's, as we know, there is no law enforcement in Sicily. Szymanski is sort of like a traveling, visiting police officer. She's not always there. And it turns out judges don't really come around. And on top of that, Holling says like, it's, you know, less holding costs, you know, if they just send a police officer to arrest Chris right before the judge is about to come through town. So... I guess that's the reason why he's allowed to roam free. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to add on to that that I thought it was really interesting that the supposed police officer who's supposed to uphold the law is only willing to uphold the law whenever it is beneficial on their terms. Like it would cost them less money if they did it right when the judge was coming. And I'm not saying that that's a moral failing of the character. That's just them being economical. There's resources to consider and all that. It just means that it's not a perfect situation for them to have handled and you can kind of see that throughout the entire episodes of these characters so if i relate this to another character we can see it with mike the lawyer who was not in any way trained to be this type of lawyer he was mostly a corporate lawyer but maurice manages to convince him by bribing him with a new air filtration system right there he doesn't represent Stevens out of the goodness of his heart. He does it for a personal reason. And and there's nothing wrong also. He had good reason for not wanting to represent Chris because he felt like he wouldn't be the best person for it. He simply wasn't trained for that. But he decides to take Maurice up on that offer because of something he can gain personally from it. So you can see these characters throughout the episode that kind of still act in their own personal interest. Right. Not necessarily within this well-defined sphere of like right and wrong. Yeah, the the moral, uh, ethical side of it. Yeah, I will say maybe part of Mike's reaction to Maurice's uh, request, Maurice says, you know, we need you to represent Stevens. And Mike's reaction 
is uh, reluctance. He even starts sneezing. And whether or not his uh, allergic reactions are real or psychosomatic or what have you, they are sort of uh, oftentimes in this show taken to represent some anxiety, some reluctance. Uh, It's just his way of expressing like, uh, he's not brave enough to take something on. So maybe Maurice is just trying to grease the wheels a little bit with by writing him a check for that air filtration system. But in the end, like concretely, that's all we have to grasp onto that the re- for the reasoning why Mike would take up this case. But he does he, he does do his best. I think there's a great scene when uh, Maggie visits Mike and Mike is exasperated. He doesn't know how he's going to win the case. Uh, Maggie says, you know, you're doing your best. And I actually really like Mike's response. He sort of lets out this exasperated uh, laugh, but it's a it's a really really well acted um, reaction without any words. I, I thought it was a great um, great piece. Right? Yeah, yeah. I like that, and I, I like that it's telling of his character that you know he originally he didn't want to represent this case, but he still cares deeply about the outcome for it. He wants to put his best foot forward. He wants to make sure that a hundred percent effort was given right there. If you let me go on down this path, Lee, yeah, yeah. Uh, I also found that you can see this kind of similar in other characters. So if we go back to that original scene that we were talking about whenever Holling is with Joel in the bar, Joel kind of makes a flippant remark about Chris being hauled off and that, you know, if there's anything like the film Deliverance, it's not going <laughs> to bode well for Chris Stevens, implying that R-rated content is going to happen to him. <laughs> but we see that it's like a little bit of a bigoted comment coming from Joel because it's implying that, like, if you're from the South, you're going to do that. Right. Uh, you know, that's kind of a wrong comment. But we can see that Joel later in the episode was also still trying to defend Chris Stevens to the best of his abilities. Yeah. And even the contents of his remarks made sense. He was saying, like, well, why are you hauling him now? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Which is him going toward the noble effort of trying to realize that, like, it's not right for you to let this guy go. And you had every opportunity to catch him. But now you're suddenly going to spring the trap. So... Within that bigoted comment, you can still see like the overarching theme of Joel trying to do what we called in the last episode, the right thing. Yeah. And I, I like how the end of that little scene with Hauling is Joel saying, well, we can't let this happen. We can't let Chris get taken back to West Virginia. So we can see that Joel is uh, wanting to join the fight maybe or or right some sort of wrong here. Uh, I did want to mention about Mike. Um, you mentioned how he is more of a... Um, corporate lawyer. He's not a criminal defense lawyer. He's not studied in criminal law. But I think uh, that makes for a very compelling uh, story when you take uh, your protagonist, or sorry, I guess he's not the protagonist, but someone who has to accomplish a goal, uh, the person who's least likely to succeed often tells, makes for the best story. He's got so much hardship. Uh, I guess in this case, Mike just has no clue what he's doing, uh, but he's still got to fight you know, this uh, insurmountable force that is the law, I guess, this judge character um, that we'll introduce soon. Yeah, it's that classic trope of someone being outside of the system to fight the system. But in order for them to succeed, they have to use a strategy that people ordinarily in the system wouldn't do. Yeah, he's like thinking, very much thinking outside of the box. Uh, and maybe that's because he doesn't know the box. So he's just doing what he what he can think, come <laughs> up with. Um I will say, man, this is the kind of episode that I think Mike Monroe, like I wish Mike Monroe were like used like this more often. We hardly get any sense of sort of a romance between Maggie and Mike. You know, maybe they're a little close in some scenes, but that's not really the focus. But I do like how they lean in on that uh, 
ex-lawyer side. You know, that's always been the fascinating part to me. And uh, yeah, I really think this is the episode that draws the most from that. Obviously, it's the it's like a courtroom episode. Right. So we go to the next scene, which is going to be with Joel and Ed eating at the brick with Shelly serving them. And Shelly kind of makes an analogous remark saying that uh, being on trial is kind of like the same thing as being judged in a beauty contestant pageant. And Joel kind of makes a remark to be like, ah, that's nothing true. One is like about literally could be life and death between a person. And the other one is just like a person being judged on how they look. And Shelly kind of, kind of insightfully says like, well, not necessarily like... You know, honestly, it could just all be subjective. Maybe sometimes the judge isn't being totally impartial and that some part of him or her is being influenced by their own personal prejudices. So the ruling that they're giving out is not completely unbiased. Now, naturally, it's not supposed to be like that. The judge is supposed to be ruling by the book. Obviously, they went to law school and all that, I'm not trying to insinuate that like judges don't know what the heck they're talking about. Obviously, they do. It's just that the interpretations that they're coming up on could be kind of the same as the interpretations of when you're judging another human being. Yeah, or that they're – is it that Shelley's like sort of suggesting that their interpretation could be tinted by some some other inconsequential factor? It does Remind me, I actually forgot that that's a very important part of this scene. It totally – flew past my head, but is it that Shelly says something like, you know, these beauty pageant judges, maybe it's something that they ate, or there's like one little small thing that happened that doesn't really matter, but that really sticks in their craw. What What is the argument she brings? Yeah, she's saying that, you know, with men, it's supposedly in her case, she's saying that <laughs> you can make more mistakes with men because they're more lenient. Uh, obviously, you know, it's a sexist remark. Yeah, but and Joel kind of calls her that, out for that for a second, but no, sorry, go ahead. Right. She's saying that with a judge that is a woman judging in a beauty contestant, they would fault you for a number of things that are inconsequential. So she's saying that it's much harder when it's a woman than with a man. Interesting, yeah. I do like that, Joel. Um, I really like this exchange. It's kind of more of a comedy exchange, but Joel says, uh, Shelly, I hate to minimize your experience, but I hardly think that a beauty contest and a court of law are analogous. Shelly responds, well, maybe not, but they're definitely the same. <laughs> so it's the joke is that Shelly doesn't <laughs> understand the, the word analogous. Uh, but still, like, you know, that that is what allows her to uh, launch her argument. Let's see. There's actually a scene before this where uh, Mike has to go talk with Chris. He's like, I'm going to represent you. And we learn uh, a little bit of backstory. You know, Mike asks, what did you do that was so wrong that they're coming after you like all this way? This many years later, turns out Chris uh, was in prison for Grand Theft Auto. He and uh, Joy King George stole a 71 Firebird. So that's how Chris was apprehended or you know brought into jail. And uh, on top of this, the commissioner of corrections in Wheeling, West Virginia, has like this long-lasting family feud with Chris Stevens's uh, family. I think also Chris used to bully the commissioner of corrections, you know, when they were kids. So that's not going to be very good. Yeah, it's like two layers underneath what you should be doing in the pursuit of justice. Like, it's wrong for the commissioner of corrections to hold a grudge and to personally want to find Chris Stevens and punish him exclusively. But Chris Stevens did break the law. So it is within his purview. And if you looked at it with his sympathetic eyes, Chris Stevens used to bully him. So he has more incentive. You know, we're, we're only human. 
again, bringing up that subject of like, what is the perfect sphere between right and wrong? Right. Again, I think uh, Chris has a very Zen state in a lot of this. And I like how a lot of uh, these scenes end in that almost like uh, introspective feeling. For instance, this scene with Mike, uh, you know, we learned that Chris just doesn't have, he has like hardly any chance that he's going to win this case. I think Mike explains pretty much like the first thing he says, like all that the prosecution has to do is uh, prove that Chris is the same person that's on the warrant and that's it. You know, it's the case closed, you know? So even after this uh, bleak outlook, the scene ends with Chris uh, and Mike, they're kind of seated looking out towards nature, this beautiful background and a bird flies by and Chris is like, oh, hey, look, there's a tarmigan over there by that uh, that old log down there. It's just very relaxed state, even though this... um, this oh, news. man, that subtext. <laughs> yeah, and there's, again, like uh, the scene with Bernard, the opening bite that we uh, we opened with. Uh, at the end of that scene, it's it's sort of this uh, very calm, like Chris gives uh, Bernard this smile, you know, just looking at his brother and his brother's new fishing rod. It's a, uh, he's just a very zen-like guy, I guess, in this circumstance. Yeah, I guess it's trying to, if I was looking deeper into the analysis of this, it is... Oh my God, hang on, really quickly. I was just skipping through the episode. I was just looking through it. And in the scene with Mike talking with Chris, there's a lot of items scattered on this table. And on the table, there's a quick shot of a owl statue, which I I can only take to be a symbolic reasoning, again, with birds wanting to just fly. And earlier, Bernard was fishing, and it shows that fish just want to swim. They just want to escape. Yeah, very like natural and free. You know, these scenes take place at the river with uh, these natural wildlife and, uh, you know, later like uh, with this mountainscape behind them and birds are flying free. Like we actually see that happen on camera and we get this uh, this little added symbol of the, it's like a little owl ornament or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like a classic garden ornament. (laughs) It's crazy. Well, let's see. We should probably introduce the judge character. She's played by Anne Haney, who I recognize from Mrs. Doubtfire. She's like the lady who's who's sort of a uh, is is like tracking Robin Williams's progress in that movie. You know, she's always making sure he's got a job, a suitable place of living. Uh, I can't remember her exact uh, job description in that show, but she's a judge. Uh, in this show, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's the judge here. So she's typecast. Uh, maybe so. I think she's often typecast in a lot of these um, sort of erudite, older, um, very proper uh, people. But I think she's great. And she shows a lot of character, specifically in the scene with uh, Ruth Ann, where they're like skeet shooting. But we'll probably get ahead of ourselves. We can get there um, in chronology. But um, yeah, that's sort of our introduction of the judge. And I think... The introduction is also with um, what we talked about, like Shelly and Ed and Joel noticing this. And Shelly's like, oh, wow, Chris has no hope if if he's got a female judge. (laughs) Yeah. Her name is Elizabeth Percy, and she rules that court with kind of an iron fist because she will dismiss the court easily if they start making too much noise, which we can see in the next scene whenever Chris and Mike are squaring off against, I don't believe he has a name. He represents the state of West Virginia. I guess just the prosecution. Yeah, which I guess they made him look very, I guess the word is like 
squeaky and small. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He just looks like a almost like an intern or something. Like they just sent some random person to because it's a open and shut case. But right, yeah. and unfortunately, he does not have the fingerprints. So based on the shoddy photo that he delivered, Elizabeth Percy, the judge, cannot convict Chris right then and there because she does not know for 100% sure that it is Chris Stevens, which brings us to Mike's grandstand plan, which is to say that the Chris that is standing here in this courtroom is not the same Chris as the one you skipped parole six years ago in West Virginia. Yeah, it's uh, on, on, you know, she says like, on what grounds? And he says, identity. You know, it's a completely different identity even though it might be the same person or it's hard, you know, it's, we're starting to do some mental gymnastics here. If you, if you keep going down this, uh, path, which, which we will, you know, this episode goes there, but, um, uh, you know, I think she even brings up, it's like, you know, this isn't the Supreme court, you know, this is just, uh, we just need to verify the fingerprints, but you know, conveniently that does buy them some time because, uh, the prosecution doesn't have that sort of like, uh, identification that, you know, holds up in a court of law. They've got they've got time as they're waiting to get these fingerprints. Uh, so, yeah, what happens next? Yeah, they have a uh, they have time to kill, which I think is kind of interesting because in the beginning of the episode, in Chris's cave address, he says "tempest fugit," which means ah, "time flies." Yeah, yeah. She only grants on this premise because uh, she's pretty much bored, which carries <laughs> over to the next scene. But before we get to that scene, we see that Chris has a replacement. Uh, yeah. He is using his brother, Bernard. Yeah, Bernard is waxing philosophical on let me I didn't, you know, it's a it's a great monologue, but you know, it's pretty back and forth. There's no absolute truth there, just a lot of musings. And I think I think this has happened before, specifically with Bernard, where he brings up a question and he uh, looks at both sides, but doesn't offer a, a particular answer. He just uh, proposes the question. But I think it was about the law, right? <laughs> what Do you remember what he says? Yeah. It's something very loquacious that impresses Maurice. Right. So he's basically saying that at the time, whenever you create laws, you would think that they're carved in stone. But- because of the passage of time and the way that our cultures change and our understanding of people change, the laws will have to change as well. So it is actually mostly written in water. And that was his musings uh, on the air. And, you know, obviously plays throughout the episode. You know, they didn't just say that for random. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the main takeaway from the scene is that Maurice is impressed by Bernard. Yeah, and, you know, that that is paid off later uh, in the episode where Maurice – in fact, they have like a Shelly throws a going away party for Chris. So everyone gets to say goodbye because the next day he's probably going to get convicted. Well, uh, Maurice finds Bernard and offers him uh, uh, the job as as Chris's replacement, um, which, wow, that's a scene in itself. We'll get we'll get there. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's wait till we get there. Let's keep going chrono- chronologically. Um, I like the next scene. Chris uh, goes to to Mike in like his office. I'm not really actually sure where this takes place, but uh, he goes into an office room with Mike who's kind of digging through some papers. And Chris says, look, um, hold up. If, if I'm not the Chris Stevens named in the warrant, who am I? And I think it's an interesting uh, philosophical question. And Mike says, uh, you know, what? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe you should figure that out uh, before we have to meet back up <laughs> in, in, in the courtroom. 
Uh, and then I yeah, actually go ahead, go like ahead. that. Yeah, I, I I love that because it's played for a great laugh where he says, uh, "You might want to think about that," <laughs> and it's well within the confines of the character Mike to say it like that and to deliver it like that. Yeah, it's great. Finally, we're getting some. We're starting to understand why Mike Monroe maybe is placed here. Hopefully, the show stays true to this. I'm, I'm digging this Mike Monroe, uh, the usage of his character in this in this way. Uh, the very same scene, Maggie enters and uh, Mike tasks her with the job of like flying to Anchorage real fast, check the library, see if there's anything about, uh, he says, any case sightings related to identity, uh, which we find out later turns up as a wash mostly. She says she she's, she finds a lot about, uh, what does she say? Personality? She finds a lot about DNA. DNA. Oh, like, yeah. She says no, she says you can find it? one on multiple uh Multiple personality disorders cases, but not one on multiple identity cases. And she also references that, like, maybe in some of these court cases, DNA isn't an admissible evidence. But then Mike makes a rebuttal to saying, like, well, that just means, like, the methodology wasn't solid. But that doesn't go into the core of what we're trying to talk about here. Right. Well, the next scene would be Judge Percy in Ruth Ann's store trying to uh, browse some books, some literature. And it turns out, you know, while she is ruling the court with an iron fist uh, during her free time. She just likes, she enjoys like a romance novel, you know? Uh, I think it's interesting. Ruth Ann uh, first offers some suggestions. You know, she says the latest Toni Morrison, which I think at the time, 1992, I was trying to figure out what book might she be referencing. There is a Toni Morrison novel that came out in 92. It's called Jazz. Though if that book wasn't released until towards the end of the year, maybe they're referring to her previous novel, Beloved, though this episode came out in December. So it's very likely, you know, it's the end of 92. So she's probably talking about jazz. Sorry, I don't know why I'm focused on like what book <laughs> they could have just said. I, I wanted them to say the title, but she just says the latest Toni Morrison. Uh, and this begins sort of the friendship and uh, dialogue that happens between Ruth Ann and Judge Percy throughout the episode. Right. Like you said, Ruth Ann tries to suggest to her some hard-hitting books, Toni Morrison, Ann Tyler, Jane Smiley, and the judge doesn't really want to read those types of novels. In fact, she is looking for more lighter romance novels, like you said. And the one that Ruth Ann recommends is Judith Krantz. Uh, she is a New York Times bestseller known for codifying the new subgenre of romance novels known as The Bonk Busters, or sex and shopping novels. And I kind of like this scene because... You would think that with a judge that's this hardened, she would also read very serious fiction. But no, she just wants to do casual readings that others might dismiss as lesser mediums to read. I I, I like that it's not necessarily true and that there's nothing wrong with reading those novels. And Ruth Ann even admits that they're good novels too. Yeah. <laughs> we know that Ruth Ann is a very well-read individual, but even she partakes in those. She's doesn't find any fault with that. And I think that's really nice of the episode to address. Yeah, and it's a very easy way for them to connect and sort of, you know, sh- they share similar interests. They're probably going to be good friends. And uh, yeah, like you said, it, I think it's a, a brilliant, uh, a wonderful subplot for this episode to um, try to represent the character of this judge, not just as uh, this institution or this plot function, but we get to see sort of the duality of this character and the struggles that... Uh, might happen uh, if you're, you know, if just a more complex character. You're not just like there to serve the plot function. 
I really enjoyed it. And again, I think right. I think she's a great she's she plays a great part in uh in her character. There's also a throwaway line that you might think is a throwaway, but I actually think there's a deeper meaning behind it. At the end of the scene, to button it all up, Elizabeth Percy asks Ruth Ann that she's trying to buy something for her grandson, I believe. And yeah. he's really young, like six or seven. And she asks Ruth Ann for advice. And Ruth Ann says, oh, well, I got like slingshots, bazookas, water pistols in the back. Boys love that stuff. And I think it's really interesting that she's using, what would you call those types of things? Something that shoots another object. Like uh, there's a term for uh, firearms. Firearms, yeah. But even firearms. Then, yeah. Oh, even no, then, no. a bazooka isn't really like projectile I mean, weapons. Bazooka, a firearm, <laughs> ranged yeah. weapons, projectile <laughs> weapons, ballistics. I don't know. For, yes, that is a better <laughs> term for it. I think it's very interesting that she brings up ballistics once again. <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell me about that because you uh, you were kind of tapping into this, uh, but that's true. You know, you were mentioning I think earlier in the episode the way it opens. They're talking about killing this deer, maybe. Uh, then we have these weapons here. What's that about? Yeah, so I'm going to skip forward a little bit ahead, but I'm going to try to tie it all together. Yeah. But yeah, there's lots of talks of violence in this episode, and particularly with guns. So in the beginning, you were saying they were talking about the moose that's being shot. Ruth Ann and Elizabeth also go skeet shooting, which right, they're firing yeah. off at discs. Chris talks about his grandpa shooting a member of the Miller family in the neck. Oh, yeah. And at the end of the episode, Elizabeth Percy, the judge, says that the defense has run out of bullets. Ah. So there's lots of imageries about guns, but it's being compared to the crime of Chris just leaving parole, which is a yeah. victimless crime. The only thing that you have to compare it to it is that he just broke the law, but he didn't kill anybody, unlike what the firearms are doing in these cases that are destroying physically another thing, whereas Chris is just destroying just an, an abstract concept of justice. That's so great. So it pales in yeah. comparison. Yeah, well, well, what I'm getting from that, something that completely flew over my head, but I think you make a wonderful point. And I really like to believe that Jeff Mavoin, the writer, knew what he was doing, you know, when he was writing this. But uh, it's this continual motif of violence and violent weapons that doesn't necessarily harmonize with what Chris uh, is being tried for. In fact, it's a perfect foil for what he's done, you know, exactly like you said. He's not being tried for any violent crime. It's, uh, you know, it, it's like peanuts compared to um, murder or, or something crazy like that. Uh, so, yeah, it's like a perfect foil that's peppered throughout and all these uh, these references, this, this these motifs. Right, and I, I want to say that's on purpose because there's no way that you would write a line like that unless you were just... I don't know, is this all just coincidental? But again, we here at the Northern Overexposure Podcast <laughs> don't really want to believe in coincidences. We want to believe that there's deeper meaning within these words, and that's why we're overanalyzing this. Yeah, you know, perhaps we spread it a little too thin, but I really want to give Jeff Mulvoin credit for that, for those uh, motifs. So, let's see, where do we leave off? Uh, there's an interesting scene. We don't really need to stick around too much on it, but maybe I could get your thoughts on it. Um, Shelly asks Ed... If he believes in sin, you know, Ed talks about how uh, he's thinking about all the bad things he did when he was a when he was a boy. One of them included, uh, I think, dropping anchors on frogs to like smush them and kill them, uh, which is pretty violent, kind of uh, sadistic. But I mean, he was just a kid and uh, but he still feels guilty for that. So um, what did you make of that scene? Do you remember that? 
Yeah, all I can be reminded of is that there is a scene in 30 Rock where the character of Tracy <laughs> Jordan is trying to find a new religion, and he goes to all the different characters on <laughs> the show asking him what the religion they are. And I think Liz Lemon says, like, uh, I don't really have a religion. I just listen to what Oprah has to say, and that's what her religion is. But Tracy goes and asks Jack Donaghy's brother. He goes, hey, Jack's brother, what religion are you? The one I'm looking at sounds really expensive. And Eddie Donaghy says, oh, well, uh, I'm Irish Catholic. Now, I know there's been a lot of controversy around the church lately, you know, because of the Da Vinci Code. But what's great <laughs> is that you can do anything, anything. And as long as you go to confession, it's forgiven. And then there's like a five-second pause of Tracy Jordan's face. And then he goes, I'm Irish Catholic. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's basically what happens in this scene. Shelley says, you know, we believe in sin, but uh, as long as you repent, you're good. You're clean. You're forgiven. But um, it isn't that simple. You know, Ed ends the scene by saying, uh, you know, that that's wonderful. But um, what about the frogs? They're dead. They're still dead. Uh, I think Shelly writes it off. She says, well, they're probably in froggy heaven. You know, that's they're OK. But <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that's that, that was a interesting little addition. I could have easily seen that being like maybe a deleted scene, but. Pretty cool. Pretty interesting. I can see it as being, yeah, I, I can see it as being kind of like a commentary on the death penalty maybe and trying to apply it to Christianity or trying to be a Catholic yeah. and come into terms with that. Maybe that's kind of the direction they wanted to go in. But, I mean, it's not like Chris's crime is going to warrant the death penalty in any way. Like, that was, that's that's kind of like a side, very, very far away related. Right. It's, it's less focused to the main plot, but, uh, you know, I guess... They had enough time, and uh, I'm not disappointed that it was included, you know. I'm glad that they didn't cut it, I guess I could say. Uh, but anyway, let's see. Charles, what should we talk about? Should we talk about the scene with Ruthann and Judge Percy skeet shooting? or? Well, we hang on. Yeah, go ahead. I want to talk about this fun quasi-montage scene okay, in yes. the courtroom <laughs> where they drag in all the witnesses yes. of Sicily yeah, yeah, yeah. and they espouse Chris's good deeds. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's also, in a way, like a clip show without clips. You know, they reference episodes that actually happened. Like, it, this isn't out of nowhere. They could be <laughs> replaying footage from lost episodes. In fact, they directly quote some uh, some past episodes. But, um, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, the, so the scene plays out with them. Like you said, they're referencing past episodes of uh, Chris's Good Deeds. We use Shelley. We have Hauling. And then at the end, I love this. They have Joel playing like an expert witness of the brain. <laughs> like he's trying to explain that like there's no real well-defined concept of personality in the scientific community. And Joel's just like in he, – he's, he's not an expert in this field. He's just like <laughs> a regular doctor. But he got called in as an expert. Dude, Joel would be so mad at you if you like argued his credentials. He's like, I'm a medical doctor from Columbia. It's like, of course I know the human <laughs> brain. Like I'm not a dullard or anything. But yeah, you're true. He's not like a brain scientist. Uh, but, uh, you know. And the, 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 the prop that he has, he, he brings in like a It's like a like chart. Easel right? Yeah, easel with, like with a the chart. <laughs> and in large lettering, it says the brain. And then there's a brain. Like we couldn't tell that was the brain. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, are you sure that's big enough? Like, it's going to read on camera? It's the brain. Uh, 
Yeah. And it doesn't have any bearing on it because all it does is like label the parts of the brain. Like, <laughs> like in no way would help you explain the concept of Th- uh, Theseus's ship. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, identity splitting apart. Yeah, we we do talk about Rene Descartes, uh, the mind body dualism, and Ghost in the Machine. Um, what are, the the thing I boiled down here is. Joel's line, from a medical perspective, no one can say what constitutes personal identity or how or why that identity might change over time. And I guess that's the whole uh, boiled down essence of what Mike is trying to demonstrate here with this uh, testimony. Yeah, Mike is kind of grasping at straws because right after that happens, he starts going on a lecture about a super common topic debated, which is, you know, nurture versus nature, which has been going on for centuries. And the judge shuts him off. She's like, I draw the line at a lecture in Psychology 101. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. Like, if you were someone outside of your area and you were having to argue in that area, you would try to find, like, all sorts of things that you could grasp very quickly, but on an elementary level. So Mike would only have a very surface level understanding of all this uh, talks of identity. And it would make sense that he would just try to grandstand on these. Yeah, like the psychology 101 in this case. Uh, This is also, I believe, the part where we get that eight millimeter home movie montage. We see Chris as a boy sort of grew up with his uncles, his two uncles and his mom. And, uh, as for the, like, you know, following the canon of the show, Chris's dad was a traveling salesman who, you know, obviously had another family on the side, which explains Bernard Stevens, his brother. I just, I still think it's funny that, you know, the Chris Stevens in the penitentiary reading Walt Whitman has like long hair and the mustache. Like that's the, you know, we got to make Chris look younger, put a, put a mustache on him. (laughs) So... Shelly throws a going away party. Uh, Marilyn brings burritos. I'm just looking at my notes. I think it's cute that she asks for Chris's autograph. That's nice. Oh, this is pretty cool. I'd actually never heard of this piece of literature before, but um, I want to say Chris is talking to Joel about Billy Budd, which is like an unfinished novella by Herman Melville. Do you remember this? Yeah, he's talking about this novel that has a captain uh, accidentally killing a member of his crew and the member was a very unscrupulous uh, morally corrupt individual but the captain has to be hanged because he killed someone and there needs to be order you need to follow through the law to the letter so even though this you know it's a sad circumstance it had to be done and i had never heard of it either i, I had to google that synopsis yeah it seems to be like an unfinished work uh, that was compiled, but still uh, very critically uh, revered. I'm, I'm really interested in it, but um, I do want to correct. It was a sailor who, uh, you know, who has to be hanged. Um, but the person, oh, okay, okay. The, the person who makes that uh, judgment is the captain. And in fact, later, uh, whenever uh, the, is the sentencing comes, uh, Chris like stands up and claps and he says, um, God bless Captain Veer, your honor. Captain Veer being the person in this novella who, uh, who you know, who basically had Billy Budd hanged. So it's sort of a yeah, the judge in that case. The judge in that case, yeah, he's like sort of like a snide, sarcastic celebration, a, a dig, you know, saying that uh, you know maybe Captain Veer knew that killing Billy Budd was the wrong thing to do, but he had to do it to maintain 
uh, law and order or something. Yeah, I can kind of see it in the context of the novel in that back then uh, on ships, there was a huge, huge problem of mutinies. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if a mutiny succeeded, you were pretty much dead. So you really had to lay down the law on those uh, on those people. Yeah. This Okay, so this is also... I don't really have a lot to say about this, but this is also the uh, sort of the sequence where Maurice and Bernard have a conversation and uh, uh, Maurice offers Bernard the job and he's, he lets out some remarks, something like, you know, uh, you, you've got a way with words, you're wonderful at this, and on top of all that, you don't sound black. And obviously Bernard is uh, kind of offended by this. He says, look, Maurice, I like you. I do. And that troubles me, (laughs) the fact that I like you because you're racist, you're a bigot. And uh, it's interesting, you know, Bernard gives Maurice a dressing down, but ultimately kind of victimizes himself by the end of the sequence. Yeah, I I think that they were trying to go again for that angle of uh, where where it's the perfect line to be drawn between right and wrong, because it was revealed that Bernard himself is a racist used to harbor right? resentment. <laughs> yeah, against white people, but he realized it was a you know it, was, it wasn't inherently a white institutional problem. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of weird that they handled such a large race problem as a side. Yeah. Uh, now they are correct. They were bold to do this in the early 1990s, in which we are still having conversations about this to this day about you know certain code words that people are using yeah. to mask on what they mean on the other words. Yeah, that's a wonderful topic to talk about. Uh, it has merit. I just find it kind of strange that it was sandwiched in between in this plot. Yeah. Maybe they found that this was this would be the only time they could address it because this would be the only time in which the characters of Maurice and Bernard would be speaking together. Maybe yeah. that's why they decided to just go that's with it. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, this is like the moment that it happens because uh, they have to address it at this point uh, if he's about to like be hired by Maurice. But uh, no, I do agree. It's... Uh, it's a lot to unpack. You can't, and the way the scene plays out is it flips so quickly. Like, it's kind of surprising that this all, this huge sort of point A to point B arc happens in one scene. Uh, and scenes often do that. You know, they have their own sort of arc, but it's just a, it's a big, uh, it's a big flip. It's a big thing to ask to realize in just one scene. Okay, so let's get to the the skeet shooting. I really like this scene. Ruth Ann and Judge Percy are out skeet shooting. Ed is there tossing the clay pigeons, I guess you would call. Uh, actually, I, had, I looked up some stuff here. I thought it was interesting. Um, Ed mentions, he, he calls them blue rocks. Just curious where that terminology came from. And I didn't go too far into research. I just found like one article online that was pretty interesting. Uh, you would think that blue rocks might refer to the color of the uh, clay disc or whatever. But in fact, according to this article, before uh, clay pigeons became popular, they actually did use live birds. And the blue rock pigeon was like one that would dart out really fast and fly around kind of sporadically. So you can't really predict its movement whenever you release it. It just goes wild. Uh, So that would be the target back in the day. But whenever uh, skeet shooting like that became so popular, that kind of training, uh, they literally could not breed enough blue rock pigeons fast enough for that. So uh, the clay pigeon became more popular just out of uh, supply and demand, I guess. And uh, I guess they still took that name, blue rock, being like uh, oh. harkening back to that that animal. That's really interesting. I didn't know it was 
it was rock as in like R-O-C the bird. In my subtitles, is it R-O-C-K, like a, like a stone? Well, I think blue rock, R-O-C-K, is actually the term for the bird as well. Uh, R-O-C, oh. I, R-O-C, I think, is a uh, is R-O-C a mythical creature or is there actually a bird called a rock? I thought that birds could also be called rocks. It, uh, well, hang on now. Maybe I'm an idiot. <laughs> oh, it, it is mythological. That wouldn't be surprising. <laughs> yeah, in the Wikipedia article, it's an enormous legendary bird of prey. <laughs> In the mythology of Middle East, I thought rock was like an actual classification, like raptors were a classification of birds, but apparently not. <laughs> oh, wait, what? okay, whatever. Well, yeah, you you had, it's a kernel of knowledge in your head. You weren't like 100%, well, I guess you were 100% wrong, but you weren't, you weren't like far, you had the right idea. <laughs> you were in the ballpark. You have good memory though. You remember the ROC, that's what I was trying to say. But, um, okay, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty hilarious in this scene. When Ed is, he says he's got to go get some more blue rocks. He darts back to the truck and Ruthann and Judge Percy kind of make their way uh, to maybe go grab some coffee. It's very clear. You can watch Ed in the background that he's going to take a piss behind the truck. And I mean, it's very clear because uh, he's in fact, he's framed in between Ruthann and Judge Percy. Like Ruthann, I think is on the left. Percy's on the right, and in the background, in the center, you can see Ed peeing. I almost would have enjoyed it more if it was a little more of an Easter egg, like if it wasn't so obvious, because it's <laughs> it's great background acting by uh, by Ed. I didn't catch that at all. Oh no, my god! Go, go, go back and watch it. It's pretty great. I'm seeing it now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was paying too much attention to the uh, dialogue, which I kind of liked. It yeah. was really just. Those two characters trying to compare their professions and how similar and dissimilar they were. Ruthann was saying that she was a store clerk, and all she says is that, like, whenever you go up to the counter and you buy something, she says it's, like, $2. Whereas, in the case of Elizabeth Percy, it is, like, you're going to jail. Like, that's (laughs) a totally different thing. But Elizabeth Percy says that she's not judging people, she's judging actions, which is what you should be doing if you were a judge. Yeah. And she says she tries to be a judge, but not be judgmental. I don't think this has any bearing on the plot or the scene, but I thought it was interesting that a lot of times in writing and in story, character is action. So, you know, but I guess that's that's kind of a a, a narrow-minded or a one-sided way of looking at it. So what Judge Percy says here still, still flies. You know, she's not judging the people, but their actions. That's what draws the sentencing, I guess. All right. So following this along, we go to the next scene, which is Mike, Bernard, and Chris outside of Chris's place. And they're kind of talking about what their next strategy needs to be because they're starting to run out of plans. And that is where Mike gets the idea that he might need to put Chris onto the stand. But Chris is kind of a freewheeling individual, kind of doesn't uh, like making plans. So he tells him like, I don't really know what I'm going to say when I get up there. And that's where Bernard tries to say, like, well, uh, you should, like, draw up, like, a strategy in order to succeed. And Chris is kind of against the idea because he's saying, like, well, hang on now. If I'm trying to win, then I'm going to use any methodology I can to win, which might include distorting the truth. But in order to get there, up into that stand, I have to tell the truth. Yeah. So he's stuck in this conundrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this scene, they, uh, you know, Mike and Bernard try to explain to Chris that, you know, you're not lying by preparing your testimony. You're, uh, I like the way, I think, I think it's Bernard who says it. I like the way he puts it. He says, uh, 
There are different ways of telling the truth. You should have it rehearsed just to make sure you're not going to um, say the wrong thing that could uh, not represent you correctly. Um, it's not that you're lying. You just don't want to have anything used against you that uh, would not reflect your innocence or what have you. And as you're saying, Charles, this does uh, evolve into, well, I mean, it's it's brought under a spotlight whenever Chris has to take that, uh, is it called taking an oath? Whenever you swear to tell the truth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it kind of uh, breaks apart in that moment. He can't, uh, you know, Szymanski holds up the, you know, Bible or whatever, and he's got to take that vow or oath. And uh, what does Chris say? It's kind of like what you were saying. Like uh, he's going to use any method, even if it's subconscious, uh, to try to preserve his freedom. Of course, he's going to try to tell the truth, but how do you tell the truth? Is there... So I really... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I I think this is like a really interesting topic in that I want to relate it into something that is not related, but the themes of it are. So... For example, for like a job interview or for online dating, you try to present your best self. As Bernard says, you put your best foot forward. But is that really your true self right there? So, for example, let's use like uh, online dating, for example. You would choose and curate the best pictures of yourself that you can find. And you would make sure that the bio says everything that you wanted to say. And it's all clean and snappy and nice. And these pictures uh, are meant to be snapshots of, quote unquote, you. But you're choosing what pictures to show to other individuals in order to show what your best foot forward is. But is that really a true representation of what yourself is? And I think that kind of relates to what Chris is trying to say. Is like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if like me going out there and trying to put my best foot forward is the right play because I did commit this crime. Like, I, I can't spin it otherwise. That yeah. is who I am. Yeah, he says, you know, is that the whole truth? The idea of what you're saying, Charles, what you put forth in your job interview or dating profile. I like he says, it's a piece of the truth. Certainly not the whole enchilada. Uh, let me play. Let me play the soundbite. Raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Mr. Stevens, is there a problem? Well, Your Honor, I may have a, a conflict of interest here. Would you care to elaborate? I can't swear to tell the whole truth. I mean, when push comes to shove, I just as soon not go to jail, and I don't think I can keep that from influencing my testimony if. Only at the subconscious level, you see, Mike and I, we've been over what I'm supposed to say, and I gotta tell you, it's pretty persuasive stuff, but is it the whole truth? It's a slice of truth, a morsel, a refraction, it's, it's a piece of the pie, certainly not the whole enchilada, and now that, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I can tell the whole truth about anything. That's a pretty heavy burden, because we all just see the world through this little distorted piece of Coke bottle. Is there such a thing as objective truth? I wonder. Don't you? It is a conundrum, Mr. Stevens. I like evoking the image of the Coke bottle right there because the Coke bottle is going to be made of glass. And of course, it's a very easy symbolism to use in that glass refracts. And that based on the angle of what you're looking at light, your perception might change. And it's a really easy one to make, but I always fall for it every single time. Yeah, it's a great, great symbol there. You know, ultimately, uh, the judge, you know, has to respect that Chris cannot give testimony if he does not take that oath. That's just like this time-honored legal tradition requirement, you know, for him to take the stand. But uh, I do love 
throughout this entire episode, there's some really great courtroom talk, dialogue, you know. The judge tells Chris, in view of your extraordinary candor, I grant you the opportunity to make a brief statement in your own defense, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not on the official record, but Chris's statement is a quote from Carl Jung. Well, I think Carl Jung put it best, Your Honor. We should not pretend to understand the world only by intellect. We apprehend it just as much by feeling. Therefore, the judgment of the intellect is at best only the half of truth and must, if it be honest, come to an understanding of its own inadequacy. So I think this quote ties in with a lot of themes in this episode about truth, uh, about identity, uh, a lot of these philosophical questions that are raised. And ultimately, I think this... um, this quote fits with their argument. You know, if, if their argument's going to win the case, it will only win because it is not, it's not necessarily logical. You know, it's kind of outside of the box. It has its own logic, but as we said before, it's operating outside of, uh, out of the box of what would normally proceed in th- this kind of courtroom case. Yeah, it's succinct. It gets to the point across, and it makes the judge have to call for a recess right there. Which leads us to the next scene of Chris and Bernard being in K-Bear, kind of taking in calls, um, feeling out what the public is feeling about it, (laughs) which from what we can surmise, the public is on Chris's side right there. And they go into a philosophical quandary where they're talking about, you know, is a reformed sinner truly a different person than what he was? And Chris is trying to relate it, saying like, well, in Judeo-Christianity, no, because inside all of us, there was that being that wanted to seek out the proper life. So all you did was just stray from that being and you just returned to it. Yeah, that's sort of their whole argument is can can we draw a separation between a sinner and their reformed self? But the answer they come to, I guess, is at least in Judeo-Christianity, as you said, the sinner discovered a divine spark that was always there. Uh, so it was never really any change. Maybe like, as you said, a stray from the light this is all, this musings are all in response to a question fielded by a caller. Uh, she asks, you know, why can't the old Chris go back to West Virginia and the new Chris stay here? They write off this question as being like physically impossible, but if they want to explore the philosophical ramifications of the question, uh, I guess it turns out that at least what they reach is, uh, you know, Chris doesn't really have a shot with his argument. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think they're trying to say that like, the sins remain with the person. Uh, you can't separate a before and after of you that doesn't include what you did in the before to make the after. <laughs> you come packaged with the full thing, basically. I have a quote here from, uh, I think it's a Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Certitude is not the test of certainty. Does Mike say that? Yeah, Mike says that whenever we return back to the courtroom. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes is used a lot of times yeah, because he was one of the most proficient members of the Supreme Court. I think one of my favorites of him is that, let me find it, taxes are the prices we pay for a civilized society. And he was a Republican. Wow. Yeah. That's a great quote. Um, But so I think this is just sort of a last ditch effort from Mike because this is uh, about to be the judge's ruling. And uh, this is where we get the whole God bless Captain Veer quote from Chris. And uh, it turns out, though, that the court rules, uh, let's see, in a special circumstance, uh, the court would deem that removal of a certain individual would place an undue burden upon his or her community 
then it is accepted practice to delay execution of the sentence. I guess Chris has a vital impact on the life of Sicily, and his removal would cause an undue hardship on the town, exceeding the hardship of his own offense. So essentially, the ruling is that Chris is guilty, but he will not serve a sentence. Uh, He's free for three years until he has to serve his sentence, I think. Uh, I think that there is wording right after that. I think it says, like, should he, should should they return back to the case? Basically saying, oh. like, from oh, my yeah. understanding should they, should of they, it, they have to come back and, like, West Virginia has to come back and get him. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that was my understanding of it. It's like, he should be free unless you guys just really want to stir stuff up again. Come back in three years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a utilitarianist argument saying that he provides more to this town than he would not being in the town and just putting him into another location simply for the sake of uh, the law right yeah. there. And I feel like that's the argument that Mike should have been making in the exactly. beginning. She makes the case the for them. Like she's for him. like, he could yeah. have just done because that was all the testimonies. That's what that was all about. Uh, sorry. Continue. Yeah. She kind of throws him a bone and she does <laughs> the defense's <laughs> argument for them, which means that she is kind of going beyond her purview of a judge. Yeah. But, you know, she was swayed by all the uh, pitter-patter that they were bringing. So, <laughs> you know, it's still nice. I love that Mike says, well, Chris says, wait, what just happened? What does that mean? Mike says, we won, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, later Bernard says, you know, we had a, that was like a such a great defense, the, the no defense defense. All right. So we're kind of closing out on this episode. We get an ending monologue from Chris on K-Bear. I like that he invokes Robert Frost. Well, first he says, are we one person fixed at birth? That's the question. Uh, We always the same person. Robert Frost said, we dance around in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. So basically saying, you know, we're always questioning something. We'll never figure this out, but we always dance around it. That's just our nature. Yeah, beautiful. It's a great Robert Frost one. <laughs> I want to end the episode by talking about one of the testimonies that they gave. Oh, uh, yeah. Maggie's testimony. She was talking about the episode Burning Down the House. And she was saying that at the time, she was going through such a turmoil of her life, trying to deal with her parents' divorce, trying to deal with her house being burned down. And that's where Chris gets the idea to put her piano, her beloved piano, onto a trebuchet and fling it just, you know, (laughs) over the lake. And it befuddles the judge right there. And she is ensorcelled by that imagery, saying that because she was a witness to this, for that brief moment in time, she kind of forgot where she was. She forgot about all their troubles that she was experiencing, and Chris was kind of her salvation at that moment. And I think it's kind of beautiful because at that moment, you're taking flight like Maggie's piano, and you leave behind your earthly being and escape the bonds of gravity, as she calls it. So really, this episode, it's a lot about flying imagery and taking flight. That freedom, yeah. I like that she calls it a catapult, and uh, Chris corrects trebuchet. Just because it's always referred to as the catapult, I think, in this show. But it is, uh, I guess it is a trebuchet. I still couldn't tell you what the difference is, but. (laughs) So yeah, this is the point in our episode where we should introduce our guest. Every episode of this podcast, we like to bring on someone who has never seen the show before, just to sort of get their fresh perspective. 
in today's uh, eyes, I guess. And for this episode today, we've got the musician Jordan Prince, who's going to be giving us his opinion of the show. Jordan and I went to college together, but now he lives in Germany. And he's actually got his own podcast called Artsy Fartsy Immigrants. It's sort of like a comedy podcast about uh, creative expats. And I mean, obviously, he's a very talented musician. I recommend you check out his music. Uh, his website is jordanprincetunes.com. And then also he's got Instagram at jordanprince. Uh, but anyway, let's hear his thoughts on this episode. Hey, my name is Jordan Prince. Thanks for bringing me on the show, guys. Um, I started the episode, and you should know that I don't know anything about this TV show. I, I never saw it. I had a note that I wrote down where I said... Um, this reminds me of the kind of show that just lingered on my TV as a kid, like stuff that I didn't pay attention to, but I recognized like the flow and the style. But I started the episode and the very first thing I thought was like, oh, Aiden Shaw is a radio DJ. That's cool. And then I was like, oh, no, he's getting arrested. <laughs> I thought so. OK, what is the deal with this theme music? Because I think it is so wildly left field and completely takes you out of like it, it it's it forces you to not take anything seriously which is funny because the show is like has a lot of drama in it a lot of heart in it at first i thought if maybe we we're in canada <laughs> i was like northern exposure oh no he's getting extradited to america but they're in alaska so and they really they really all came together they really teamed up to save the dj so i thought that was kind of funny like wow he seems important I, I recognized a lot of the actors, like, um, of course, I said Aiden Shaw from Sex and the City, but also there's, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, Anthony Edwards. I realized that I recognized him, but it, I had to Google him because I was like, I know this guy's face. He plays Mr. Monroe, the lawyer. And I was like, I know this guy, but it wasn't from his eight years on ER. <laughs> it wasn't from his, you know, Emmy nominated performance. It was from Zodiac. That's why I know him. Um, but anyway, I wrote down that I, I actually really like the acting and I recognize so many people who went on to do other cool things. It's just that the dialogue is kind of cheesy. I wrote that Bernard's speech on, on the air about how the law <clears throat> is written in water kind of flowing in and out as time changes. I was like, okay, that's oddly beautiful. You know, that's kind of nuanced, but the town is just so perfect and caring. It's, it's, it's too idealistic. It's like someone's fantasy. And I wrote down, okay, so it's like a small town comedy drama where everyone gets involved with everyone's business. And, and then I wrote down also, what kind of warrant case is this anyway? Because it doesn't, they're so involved with just this guy because he, you know, took a car in West Virginia six years ago. It's like, well, just deal with it, dude. But everyone is way too intelligent collectively. You know, like they're all supposed to know this 17th century philosophy. You know, they're just like, ah, dualism, of course. Yes, go on. I, I couldn't buy that at all. I was like, what is this guy talking about? But anyway, the story, I wrote down that the story arcs and the character revelations are just like super easy on, and on the nose. But there is something so damn charming about the show. I, I actually think that I would watch it again. Yeah, I would watch another episode. I wrote that Chris's need for purity is so outdated that it makes me not like him, you know? I, I do like this line, though. Sometimes you got to do something bad just to know you're alive. I was like, all right, okay, I can support that. Chris's speech about whole truth makes me roll my eyes so hard they might get stuck. No one would ever allow that kind of speech in a courtroom uh, or, or sympathize with it. 
I realized I would never listen to their radio show. It's so pretentious. When Chris and Bernard are together talking about like the corp- corporeal realm or whatever, I really got angry with them. But then I realized that the listener also got confused. They were like, did, did this answer your question? And she was like, I guess. <laughs> I like that because I thought, okay, they're not taking themselves too seriously. But finally... I do love the vernacular of this episode because I, I, I wonder where this kind of creative language went to. I don't see it so much in today's television, but, you know, the way the judge spoke and Chris annoyed me a lot, but just the way the whole group kind of used really interesting, beautiful, more complex terms uh, for things than, than we have today. And I, I felt very dumb watching it. I was like, this is really like tasty language. I want to just drink this in. But um, there was a nice final monologue. And then this crazy music comes back and just obliterates the mood. But um, yeah, in general, I liked it. I think I'd watch another one and uh, super weird. So thanks thanks for having me. Okay, when you said jordanprincetunes.com, I was thinking like, oh, he didn't get the Jordan Prince domain name. Like he had to add an additional letter, you know, to get the thing. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a second, is my name like, is that have a domain? <laughs> I, I just typed it in and it links to like this, it's unsecured network Ugh. right here. And it's written in Chinese in some of it. And it looks and appears to be like on an SOS site. It's like a computer programming site or something. I don't, I'm kind of disappointed my name links to that and not something much more cooler. Yeah, I just looked up mine. It seems like uh, the domain has been registered. And maybe it's just, yeah, I think it's just someone like holding the the domain, not really using it for anything. Because it's got like buy FIFA coins. Uh, watch live streaming video. Uh, Only fans. But good on Jordan for having a great website uh, domain there. Jordan Prince Tunes. All right, so let's get back into Jordan's commentary right here. So Jordan is saying that this is the type of television show that lingered on his TV, which is a great imagery to have when you're a child, whenever you just leave the television on, and it would probably uh, bleed into it because it was those old CRTVs that weighed like a ton, (laughs) and uh, you didn't didn't pay the electric bill, so you didn't care. You just left the TV on. Um, That's a really great imagery right there. Yeah, that glow. And it's like that feeling of a... I remember when I was a kid, any adult TV show, just at least from my memory, it's like it was impossible for me to concentrate on, you know, just maybe because it was uh, attention deficit or whatever. Like I was bored unless it was cartoons or flashy. Uh, I just remember anything that my parents would watch, even like Seinfeld. I remember they watched Seinfeld a lot and just it almost felt like oatmeal or just something so bland it was hard to (laughs) – just like like my memories of it are like mushy and it's like – like there was, what was my brain doing trying to focus on this show? Anyway, yeah, it's, I, go ahead. I, I don't think I watched like a television show with like real human beings on it <laughs> till I was like, honest, honest to God, I think I might've been like 13. Like, I think I just watched cartoons because I was a child. I was just like, these are way cooler. Like, I'm not, why would I watch Seinfeld and talk about adult things? Like, no. I definitely got to watch a lot of cool movies as a kid. My family would always watch a lot of movies, like in theaters, but also at home. Tons of movies. Yeah, yeah. I would watch movies, but like in terms of like syndicated television shows, like Friends or uh, yeah. popular shows of the nineties, I never did any of that. Uh, <laughs> the knowledge of that is so bad. But yeah, Jordan is saying that the episode starts off with a bang with Chris being arrested. Maybe in Canada, he's being extradited <laughs> to America. No, yeah, he he slowly figured out or shortly figured out that 
Uh, it was in Alaska. Uh, I like his reaction to, well, it was Aiden Shaw is who he recognized. That's the character that John Corbett plays in Sex and the City. Uh, but it's like, oh no, Aiden's getting arrested. Um, <laughs> and also, yeah, this is not the first time that a guest has brought this up. And we tend to forget about it, I guess, since we've watched so many episodes. But a lot of these opening stingers, like these little opening gambits, will end on a very dramatic note sometimes. Uh, and then the the theme music is so jovial and just kind of cheesy, just in uh, juxtaposition to what you just saw. So it's kind of startling, just like, wait, what? The way the music pops in. <laughs> he says that he recognizes Mike from the film Zodiac. Yeah, I actually had to do a Google image search because, Charles, we've watched this movie together probably more than once. We, we love this movie Zodiac. I just forgot that he was in it. Though I'm sure if I'm watching it, I'd be like, oh, that's Mike Monroe, you know. Yeah, I totally didn't know that, uh, that he was in that film. Though, I I have a, it's a really bad thing. It's a proof that I'm like on the internet a little bit too much. Because when I hear like Zodiac, my brain's just like, Ted Cruz? (laughs) (laughs) Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer. That was like a meme. Just because, was that because like he just looks like, sort of like the artist rendition or something? (laughs) I think, (laughs) that's actually, I actually don't know. You don't know? You might he might actually look like the artist rendition, but I think the prevailing theory. <laughs> Why did I think of that? I, I think the prevailing theory is that Ted Cruz is a really like cold dude, and we don't know a lot about his past. Yeah, so he's attributed to be a serial killer. All right, get a grip. Of, get a grip of yourself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to think of that. Here, I'll pull right, the we, picture. Uh, Yeah, there's like, I think the the first meme I saw that was Ted Cruz, Zodiac Killer, was like, you know, picture Ted Cruz next to the artist rendition. Though, looking it up now, it kind of looks more of like a, I'm not just like attributing this to Republicans, but it looks more of like a Mike Pence with some like, some big glasses, the, the artist rendition that is. There, there is actually a Wikipedia page on Ted Cruz Zodiac Killer meme. <laughs> oh, anything, hey, you know what? We, we, okay, yeah. I was going to say, anything we should know about or let's move on. <laughs> let's get back to Jordan's commentary. Uh, he does say um, some of his gripes was like cheesy dialogue, overly um, philosophical in an in almost like because it's an unrealistic way. Uh, he points out like sort of the the town is very idealized. And it's true. I actually remember uh, one of our guest commentaries. It was from the second episode where Beale said, you know, this show is a lot of just these town folks talking about their feelings, you know, and this doesn't really happen probably even in small towns, but I think it's a lot more, small towns are a lot more conducive to this sort of camaraderie and friendship that you might see in this show where you, you just know everybody, even if you don't know them like you could recognize anyone in town right and jordan is saying that like it's too smart like these yeah. townsfolk just know too much about this and i i kind of agree but i kind of disagree and i'm not saying that they're not smart i'm just saying that like if you're building a television show it doesn't necessarily have to have like every character be 100 realistic like if you're mm-hmm. just trying to convey ideas then it's useful to use them as chess pieces or like mouthpieces in order to get what you're to get your ideas across. So it's useful to just utilize each one of them to go back and forth on a particularly dicey subject. Right. So yeah, I, I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah, I was gonna say just like the the failings of that would be that it's unrealistic, but I think this show is has is 
I don't know if necessarily this episode, but a lot of episodes kind of wander into magical realism. So we kind of remove ourselves from reality a lot when we watch this. Uh, but Jordan, this is just the, the only thing that Jordan's seen of this. Uh, though he does say, you know, certain things um, are also poetic. You know, he really liked, even though he <laughs> kind of disliked uh, Bernard's radio monologues, he did like the imagery of the, like the law being like water, written in water and sort of ebbing and flowing away or or what have you. Right. Yeah, he said it was a too much of a pretentious radio show, though uh, I don't know if you ever turned in like uh, like XM radio recently <laughs> or like stuff like that. You can get some like wacky radio shows. <laughs> so I, I don't think this would be out of place if you're just like tuning in and just channel surfing. I will say specifically when Chris and Bernard are in the booth together, it does get a little heavy-handed or not heavy-handed but just uh, like yeah, yeah. overbearing it's usually yeah, not that much but <laughs> go ahead <laughs> there isn't anybody to balance it out like it's two people of similar caliber <laughs> being in the radio booth so you're like you're really ramping it up uh, i'm sure if they wanted to perfect this art of having two people in it one person would be like the color commentator and the other person would be like the play-by-play if i used it in the sports yeah. analogy <laughs> so like one person would be overly philosophical one grounds them right there uh, I'd like to talk about, you know, again, just like the town being too smart. Uh, this idea of in the courtroom, everyone's just um, familiar with Rene Descartes and just jump, piggybacking on these ideas, um, which obviously, you know, is probably not something in in just normal conversation. We are in a courtroom, but uh, but anyway, like normal characters may not have all this versed knowledge in Rene Descartes and these philosophers. But uh, I think um, this sort of uh, communal knowledge, uh, intelligence is often played at, it's played at often. Like this happens often, but usually for comedic effect, like there's the episode, uh, the Russian flu in the first season where the entire town is suspecting some weird, like Russian conspiracy and just normal, like, uh, just normal woodsmen, country folk are talking about perestroika and glasnost and just like, they seem to be so, uh, well-versed in, uh, Soviet history or some politics? Yeah. Well, it's I, I to, like it to comedic effect. Sorry, go ahead. Right. I, I like it in this episode because the judge is not immune to what they're saying. Like yeah. She understands <laughs> it, but she's also an outsider and she realizes like this has no bearing on the court case whatsoever. So yeah. what you're saying is pretty, but of little substance. And I, I, I like that. So you can have these incredibly intelligent, well-read townsfolk, but the judge will always throw it out and that's what brings it back down to reality. Yeah. And the reason that they're able to go on so long, at least the, the way the writer set it up for this episode is because uh, the judge is waiting on s- some evidence. So they've just <laughs> got nothing better to do, though the judge will call recess uh, from time to time in this episode. Yeah. J- Jordan also says, while you know it can be overbearing in its philosophical musings, the show doesn't take itself too seriously. It's smart enough to... <laughs> have, for instance, that radio caller, uh, it's, you know, they ask you, it's like, well, what does that clear it up for you? She's like, I guess like, you know, we, we (laughs) ultimately see as the audience that we're just left with more questions, no answers here. Uh, I also like that sort of in summation, Jordan was saying this show just made him like take a moment to think, you know, where did all of this creative language go? You know, this show, um, even when the characters are saying something I don't necessarily agree with, a lot of times some of these monologues are written very well, you know, for for a sitcom. But I think, uh, Charles, we've talked about like this show is 
it's essentially a sitcom, but it's hard to label it that. It's definitely like sort of an elevated type of sitcom. But in the end, like you can't really get too far away from the sitcom trappings with this show. Right, exactly. Uh, I would say that there's still television shows that exist nowadays Mm -hmm. that have that. I just think that there's so many television shows that Mm -hmm. sometimes it gets buried. Yeah. I think it would be wrong to say like, oh, we were much smarter in the past, but now we like (laughs) melted our brains with American Idol or something like that. Like, I I think it's still here. Uh, You just have to go searching for it. Yeah. And maybe the climate was a little different where it was, like you're saying, maybe it's a little more popular uh, or it was more programmable at the time, or maybe simply just there was less noise, you know, Uh, so less noise to like kind of battle through to get. To, to watch Northern Exposure, a show like that. Yeah, like a noise-to-signal ratio. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you, Jordan, for taking your time to watch this episode and give us your thoughts. And uh, yeah, I hope you watch another episode. And uh, sometime, maybe we'll get you back on sometime down the line. Yeah, I just want to plug once more. Jordan's got his own podcast, Artsy Fartsy Immigrants. And I don't think I mentioned he's got some new music out, a couple new singles. So definitely check him out online. And I don't know if this is like a advanced release, but he mentioned in the summer, he's going to have a new album expected to drop called Simple Swimmer. So I'm really excited for that. Uh, Charles, our next episode next week is going to be season four, episode 11. It's called Survival of the Species. I feel like a pattern growing with these titles. You know, this based on like a very famous literary text and the next episode, Survival of the Species. Uh, anyway, what are your predictions for next episode? Is that supposed to be off of uh, Jurassic Park? <laughs> I think uh, maybe like Darwin, but also, oh, also, okay. you know, because Jurassic Park was, wait, we've done this before. When we've did Jurassic Park this. come out? Like, I think this is still before Jurassic Park, though, obviously the novel, I think it was the thing where like the novel was out, but yeah, the movie would come out next year. I bet the novel was out a little bit before that, though. I'm pretty sure like. I think before the book was even written, like the rights for the movie were were bought. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I would say somebody faces the age old question of mortality. Okay. Survival taking into uh, the idea of death. So mortality, longevity. Yeah. A lot of good guesses. Well, Charles, that's enough for now. I'll see you next week. All right. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jordan Prince for being our guest analyst. You can check out his music at jordanprincetunes.com. If you want to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, Thank you for listening.